When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Author Mark Levin, in your most recent book, The Liberty Amendments, Restoring the American Republic, you propose amendments to the Constitution, including term limits for members of Congress, a repeal of the 17th Amendment for the Senate, establishing term limits for Supreme Court justices, limiting federal spending, limiting federal taxing, limiting the federal bureaucracy. Which of these are most important to you? Well, they're all really of the same uh, genre because um, the goal here is uh, to restore the republic. And uh, the federal government is so completely out of control and unhinged from the Constitution that when you look at the various things that it's doing, uh, it would be nice if we could break them into three separate branches, you know, and this branch should be controlled and that branch controlled. But it's more mush now. They, they, they really don't check each other as much as they coordinate and work with each other. And, of course, there's this other branch the framers never even contemplated, this massive administrative state, the fourth branch, I call it. So um, they're all quite important. And the goal or the purpose of the book is to not only talk about how to revive the Constitution and restore the republic, uh, but to inform people on what the republic is supposed to look like, how the Constitution is supposed to function, and to move some of the decision-making away from uh, the centralized government back to the state legislatures acting collectively as the framers intended. Welcome to the underworld. I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Access America. This is your history. This is your this country. Is your this, country. Is this is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in, Go time, back with in us. time with us right now, right now. on Public, Public Access, Access America. America. 
You write in the Liberty Amendments about the 17th Amendment. The 17th Amendment serves not the public interest, but the interests of the governing masterminds and their disciples. Its early proponents advanced. It is uh, not because they championed democracy or the individual, but because they knew it would be one of several important mechanisms for empowering the federal government and unraveling constitutional republicanism. Right. Remember, the framers didn't create a pure democracy. That would be absolute nonsense and crazy. Um, In fact, if you look at the Constitution, it's very complex what they created here. You have a central government with limited enumerated powers, three branches, each of which is supposed to be working with each other sometimes, like checking each other. Uh, And, of course, you have the states where all the plenary power is supposed to exist and the individual where all the individual sovereignty obviously exists. So this idea that direct elections is what the framers intended is not correct. They intended it for the House of Representatives. And Madison's notes make this clear. They debated this at length, what the Senate was supposed to look like. They went back and forth with different models. But when it came to the Senate, Madison and the others made quite clear that you could not have the direct election of senators without creating this all-powerful centralized national government. They wanted a federal republic, not an all-powerful centralized government. And they even made this case to the states when it went to the states for the ratification of the Constitution. They said, look, the Senate is made up of individuals chosen by the state legislature. So you're going to have a role in the federal lawmaking process, among other things. So the Federalists used the, 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 the Senate, among other things, and, the, and the, the nature of the Senate to persuade the Anti-Federalists to support the Constitution. And if we had had direct election of senators in the original Constitution, there would not be an original Constitution. The states would not have ratified it. Furthermore, who exactly do the senators represent? It's the most bizarre body that man has ever created. I mean, uh, there's two from every state. We get that. That was the balance of the large states and the small states. But the direct election of senators, you have situations now where senators voted for, say, Obamacare, in states where the governor and the attorney general fought Obamacare in court. Uh, And the state legislatures are trying to protect their citizens from Obamacare when the senators voted for it. It's very bizarre. The Senate today really um, is an odd construct. So the purpose of the Senate was to empower the state legislatures in the federal lawmaking process, not to just have another ability to vote. Recent rule changes in the Senate to limit the filibuster. Do you agree with those? No, I think uh, in in the case of Harry Reid and the Democrats in the Senate, um, they abuse the rules, whatever the rules are. I'll give you an example. Uh, They were using the filibuster to block judicial nominees under George W. Bush like no Senate in American history, period. Uh, Then they complain um, when they're in power and they can have the majority about the Republicans uh, not confirming uh, executive officials quickly enough and not pushing through Obama's legislation fast enough. And the very people who abused the filibuster rule and taught the Republicans how to do it, should the Republicans choose to do it, have now eliminated it for purpose of judicial nominees uh, at the appellate level as well as as executive uh, officials. Look, what the Senate is today, today, is a rubber stamp for Obama. Harry Reid might as well be in Obama's cabinet. 
Uh, and this is a very odd thing because rather than protect the institution of the Senate and the institution of Congress, which is what the framers intended, you actually have the majority in the Senate today doing everything it can to support the executive branch in any way it can, even if it means diminishing its own authority. This would be crazy to the framers. As a matter of fact, it would have been crazy during Franklin Roosevelt's period. You may, you may remember Franklin Roosevelt tried to stuff the court. He tried to pack the court with liberal uh, ideologues who agreed with him and his agenda. Uh, the individual who fought it the hardest was his vice president, who'd been the former Speaker of the House, and many Democrats opposed that the Democrats controlled Congress, and they wouldn't go along. So uh, you have to have people of integrity, people of virtue, uh, in whatever level of government we're talking about. We clearly don't have that in the Senate or in most of our institutions today. Uh, one other issue that's come up is whether or not it's fair that a state like California, 50 million or so people, two senators, Wyoming, less than a million people, two senators. Well, that's exactly the point. The two-senator issue goes to the fact that the Constitution would never have been ratified uh, by all the states, ultimately, if only the big states, Virginia, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania, to name three, uh, could have as many senators as they want. And this goes back to the point where the House of Representatives is the house of the people, quote-unquote, direct elections, um, the states uh, uh, based on their population. Uh, that, that's how you determine the number of members of the House. <clears throat> the Senate is a different institution. Matter of fact, the Senate was supposed to be considered in many ways, and I hate to shock people, as the House of Lords. Uh, but, uh, but it hasn't worked out that way. Some of your other liberty amendments to promote free enterprise, to protect private property, to grant the state's authority to directly amend the Constitution to grant the state's authority to check Congress and to protect the vote. Number nine, to grant the state's authority to directly amend the Constitution. What do you mean by that? That three-fifths of the state legislatures would be able to amend the Constitution. Look, today, it takes one justice to amend the Constitution, and they're doing it all the time. Today, it takes the President of the United States, as this President does, refusing to uh, uphold the law, refusing to adhere to the law, uh, refusing to acknowledge certain aspects of a particular law, changing a law like Obamacare. They're constantly amending the Constitution and amending statutes. Congress passed Obamacare, Dodd-Frank. These are, are blatantly unconstitutional laws that confer power on the administrative state and do other things that are outrageous. So the notion that three-fifths of the state legislature should be able to directly amend the Constitution should hardly be radical when the Supreme Court, in essence, is a constitutional convention every time it meets, and same with Congress and same with the president and his cabinet. And, uh, of course, in order for that to happen, we'd have to amend the Constitution in the first place to allow the states to do that, which is one of the things that I propose in my book. In your first book, Men in Black, 2005, this came out, you write, the Supreme Court, in particular, now sits in final judgment of essentially all policy issues disregarding the constitutional limitations, the legitimate roles of Congress and the president, and the broad authority conferred upon the states and the people. Yeah, the progressives have won. And I don't know why they're complaining uh, or, or, or challenging what I'm writing. You know, since uh, before Woodrow Wilson <clears throat> and Franklin Roosevelt and so forth, they made clear what their objectives were. An all-powerful central government. 
They didn't like this idea of checks and balances. They didn't like this idea of state sovereignty. And they did everything they could at the time uh, to, to undermine that, to usurp that. So we have a Supreme Court now that sits in, uh, in decision of, uh, of virtually anything it wants to consider. Look, uh, whatever your opinion is, look what happened in California with Proposition 8. Look what's happened with DOMA. Look what happens with all these issues. We all sit breathlessly, sitting on the edge of our care in June. How's Justice Kennedy going to go? How's Justice this one going to go, that one going to go? These are nine individual human beings. They're as imperfect as the rest of us. They're of blood. They're of skin. They're of bone. They're of brain matter. And they are imperfect. And the idea that a great republic with 310 million people has to await the decision of really one justice, depending on how that justice swings, or five justices, to determine you know, a particular social or cultural issue for the entirety of the nation is absurd. And the idea that there's no recourse whatsoever is absurd. And nobody, nobody can point to anything that took place at the Constitutional Convention or any of the state ratifying conventions that supports such a, a judicial oligarchy. There would be no Constitution if that's what the Constitution created, and it didn't. So one of my amendments, actually two of them, attempts to address this by term-limiting Supreme Court justices, because my view is 12 years is enough. Whether you're a great justice or, in my view, not such a great justice, uh, it's gotten way too political. And the other is that uh, three-fifths of the state legislatures, if they act within a two-year period, can override a Supreme Court decision. And why shouldn't there be recourse beyond one justice where the body politic, where the, 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 the people of the United States, if they can uh, raise the resources and drive the agenda, can get three-fifths of the legislature, a supermajority, it's not that simple, to say, no, court, you're wrong. No, Justice Kennedy, you're wrong. Why would that be so horrible? I don't think it would be. Uh, when you talk about your liberty amendments, are you calling for a constitutional convention? No. There can be no constitutional convention. I'm calling for what Article 5 calls for, a convention of the states. It's not a constitutional convention where everything is up for grabs. It is a convention of the states where two-thirds of the state legislatures uh, make application to Congress to have a convention. Congress has no substantive role whatsoever. It's clear from Madison's notes during the debates at the Constitutional Convention, and it's also clear from Federalist 85 that was written by Hamilton. It's a ministerial task. So two-thirds of the states basically call for a meeting. And rather than Congress itself having the power to propose amendments, two-thirds of the states sending their delegates to this meeting, to this convention, they then come up with, if they choose to, amendments, which then have to be sent to all the states, and you still need three-fourths of the states to ratify. Mark Levin, are these amendments doable? God, I hope so. And if not them in particular, something like them, because otherwise I think we're doomed. I think the trajectory of the nation is toward an out-of-control federal government that's becoming increasingly more centralized, you can see the increase, in, and I don't mean to panic people, in, in, the, in, in what I consider the police powers of the federal government. I mean, the idea that the IRS is now going to enforce health care laws and things of this nature is, is really disgusting. It's, it's preposterous. And 
I'm looking for a lawful, legitimate, civil, constitutional way. This is in the Constitution. I didn't create Article 5. The framers did. To address an increasingly oppressive and centralized government, that's what George Mason was concerned about it. He proposed it, and it was unanimously adopted at the Constitutional Convention and by the ratifying conventions in the states. So I hope at some point they're doable. I hope the more we can discuss this. I mean, we've come a long way in six months. There was a meeting uh, in December 7th at Mount Vernon called the Mount Vernon Assembly, where 100 state delegates and state senators met from 32 or 34 different states to begin the process of talking about this. In Indiana, the legislature has passed two bills to prepare for this, outlining how they would choose their delegates and what the authority of the delegates would be, and the governor signed it. Um, I mean, we shouldn't fear this. The, the, the people need to understand, from my perspective, we are in a post-constitutional period in many respects. The system is upside down. It's top down rather than bottom up, and it's going to get worse. And I'm trying to say, let us use the Constitution to uh, save the Constitution and restore the republic. In your book from 2012, Ameritopia, The yeah. Unmaking of America, you talk about utopianism. What is utopianism? Well, it's a whole book. But, but that said, uh, briefly put, I, what, I, what I'm saying is if you listen to the left <clears throat> and if you really understand the left, what they keep doing is promising they're going to create these, these perfect systems or these, these, these magnificent Rube Goldberg type systems. Um, we're going to improve your health care, just surrender more of your liberty and your private property. We're going we're to improve our financial system, just give us more and more power in Washington to control it. We're going we're gonna to end poverty, just give us more and more of your wealth. We'll have this war on poverty and on and on and on. And when it doesn't work, and it won't work, because it's impossible. It's impossible for a few masterminds in Washington, D.C., no matter how many bureaucrats they employ, no matter how big their administrative army is, to know what 310 million people know in terms of their own lives, in terms of uh, what motivates them, in terms of what benefits them, and so forth. Uh, but that said, the problem is that uh, it becomes increasingly more centralized. And uh, so th that's the basic proposition. You write, utopianism is irrational in theory and practice, mm -hmm. for it ignores or attempts to control the planned and unplanned complexity of the individual, his nature, and mankind generally. Utopians equal, utopianism's equality is intolerant of diversity, uniqueness, debate, etc., for utopianism's purpose requires a singular focus. There can be no competing voices or causes slowing or obstructing society's long and righteous march. That's right. And you can see the attack on free speech, whether it's television, A&E, uh, uh, Duck Dynasty, whether you can see it on our, our college campuses, uh, 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 the language is being hijacked, uh, fewer and fewer ideas are allowed to be espoused, um, uh, and, and uh, it, it's really quite troublesome to me. Um, but in addition to that, this utopianism notion, I call it really utopian statism, and it always requires the federal government to have more and more power over the individual and you can just listen to Obama, and it's not just Obama. I, uh, you know, if you listen to the Republican leadership, they sound like neo-statists themselves. But Obama, in particular, <coughs> excuse me, I have the flu. I just want everybody to know I've been fighting it for three days. 
this this utopianism. I mean, uh, and it's and it can never fail. I'll give you an example. When Obamacare fails, what's the problem? Not enough money, uh, not enough power, not enough bureaucrats, not enough something or other. So it can never fail, even though it's a complete failure and it's an impossibility. And so this is the problem some of we uh, constitutional conservatives have in fighting it. Uh, these folks are always talking about what can be, what should be, rather than reality, what they've done and the damage that they've caused. And, you know, it's our responsibility to try and do a better job to explain that, I think. Mark Levin, in your book prior to that, Liberty and Tyranny, 2009, you talk about statism. How do you define that? Well, I wanted to write a book, a restatement of conservatism, and when you're restating conservatism, you need to address liberalism. And then when I started to really think about it and do, you know, an, an enormous amount of research, you're starting to pull these things together, the names, you know, Marxism, uh, socialism, uh, social dem democracy, uh, liberalism, progressivism, I just decided to reach back to Aristotle and use a word that kind of encapsulates all of it, statism. And so uh, I can remember when I used my, that word, my uh, editor said, well, what's this word statism mean? Well, statism is essentially those who believe in the power of uh, central government uh, and less so in the power of the individual and, uh, and lower levels of governing. And uh, statism pushes the notion that government uh, uh, has as its purpose a good purpose, which is the devouring of the civil society. And those of us who know enough about history and tyranny and liberty and so forth, we reject that idea. But you can see today the statists, as I call them, some call them progressives or liberals or what have you, utopian statists more and more are devouring the uh, civil society. So rather than the government existing in a limited form, you know, uh, to, to ensure that justice occurs, and by that we mean legal justice, justice before the law, enforces contracts, you know, takes care of basic necessities like national security, securing the border and so forth. We have a federal government that is ubiquitous. As a matter of fact, it's hard to think of uh, areas of our life where the uh, federal government is not involved in some way. Should... Liberty and Tyranny, Ameritopia, the Liberty Amendment, should they be read as a trilogy? Well, as an author, I would hope so. I mean, good <laughs> Lord. <clears throat> but um, while well, one does work after the other, you know, Liberty and Tyranny, uh, you know, it just took off. I, it, 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 it was, uh, as I say, a sort of, from my perspective, a restatement of conservatism because I was really sick and tired of the Republican Party and the Republican leadership and John McCain and some of these others who were really mushing up the message and really didn't stand for a hell of a lot and really weren't explaining the, 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 the principles of conservatives, conservatism and juxtaposing it to the left. And so I felt it was time for that. And uh, Ameritopia takes a much deeper it's really a book on political philosophy, but takes a much deeper look at the left and juxtaposes that, or is there the central figure, to conservatism. Um, you know, this utopian statism, as an example, it's not new. It's Plato's Republic. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's Moore's Utopia. It's uh, Hobbes' Leviathan. I try to point that out. 
its most aggressive form. It's, it's Marx's perfect worker's paradise. And I juxtapose that to John Locke, to uh, Charles uh, de Montesquieu, to, uh, to the framers of the Constitution, where you can really see the, 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 the genius, the brilliance the, of, of liberty, and then the bleakness and the darkness of, 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 of tyranny. And I make the point that the left today, the status today, really their philosophy is nothing new. It's, it's, it's steeped in many of the old philosophers uh, who were preaching either in a fictional or non-fictional way uh, the power of the state. And the power of the state is our undoing. Mark Levin, who's your favorite philosopher? That's impossible. <clears throat> it's a good question. But it's impossible. I, there's so many. I, I mean, Locke would be one of them. And Mont, Montesquieu. Well, Locke, Locke, in my view, really laid out the most uh, cohesive or comprehensive case for the civil society and the nature of man and natural law and had an enormous influence on our founding fathers. He, he was the most read philosopher during the revolutionary period, John Locke was, uh, by the colonists. And Montesquieu, uh, which is one of the reasons I have both of them in the book of Ameritopia, was one of the most widely read philosophers during the constitutional period. Uh, his argument for three separate branches of government, uh, he's the one that maybe not first proposed it, but most predominantly proposed it, uh, so, and you know, Adam Smith and David Hume, and I can go through a whole list of them. Uh, modern day, I, I guess I would say that people consider them philosophers, sort of Milton Friedman, Hayek, Mises, uh, men of that sort. And then there are many others, I'm sure I can't remember them all, but um, not one in particular, but, but all together. And by the way, the framers were well read on well, obviously, not men who didn't exist at the time, <clears throat> but many of the men at the time and before uh, their time who did exist, they were well informed about the Enlightenment, about uh, about what had taken place before history. You look at Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence borrows heavily, uh, heavily from uh, from Locke's Second Treatise on Government. Uh, the Constitution borrows heavily from Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws. Um, and so this is a good thing, and these are the philosophers that I think, and others, many others, who should be the focus of our educational system, who should be the focus of our public discussion, but I fear that uh, other than a very small percentage of the population, most people have either never heard of them and certainly don't know much about them. So I, I try to do my best to spread the word. Who's on the other side? The philosophers on the other side? Um, well, the, the, Marx and Engels, I think uh, when people talk about progressivism or democratic socialism or even liberalism, many of them may not realize how much they take from, uh, from Marx in one form or another. It doesn't mean you need to round up people and put them in gulags. <clears throat> oh, that clearly has been done. Trump rally. 
When Mexico sends its people, fuck political correctness, fuck political correctness. They're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Vote for Donald Trump. Vote Islam. Fuck up. Every woman lied. What was said? This was locker room talk. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would probably get along very well with Putin. It's an ambassador bag. I'm sure that paperwork comes in Spanish. This guy, oh, I don't know what I said. Uh, I don't remember. Please don't lie. I don't remember. I had all the baby. That's what I said. I don't throw babies out, believe me. I love babies. Actually, I was only kidding. You can get the baby out of here. He, he said, said I had small hands. Actually, I'm 6'3", not 6'2", but he said I had small hands. They're not small, are they? I never heard, I never heard that one before. Hillary Clinton needs to get her ass spiked. Do I hit it long? Is Trump strong? I am officially running for president of the United States. Thank you, Anthony Weiner. And we are going to make our country great again. Well, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot some, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. He referred to my hands if they're small. Something else must be small. There's never been anything like this, so go and register. Make sure you get out and vote. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Immigrants and immigrants, they mix together. I feel he's the last chance we have to establish law and order and preserve the culture I grew up in. Would I approve waterboard? You bet your ass. If you don't speak English and don't contribute, get out. I'm going to take such good care of women's health care issues. I have such respect for women. I cherish women. She's the devil. So far, we're doing well, though, right? Have I been a good messenger? He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured. This is a movement like people have never seen before. I thought I heard a little voice over there. I get him out. Take him out. Yeah, Whistle out of the mouth and rip that Go home to mommy. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in police? Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20.